Let's, uh, let's move into Matthew chapter 1 and just spend some time here. This passage is just a fertile ground for a lot of um, Christmas preparation in your heart. So it is Matthew's preface to the birth account that he'll include in Matthew chapter 2 with the, the arrival of the Gentiles into the time of uh, worshiping the king, which is, uh, that's something that's been hoped for since the time of Abraham, that the Gentile nations we brought in, that would be brought into uh, worship the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And so Matthew's already kind of, he's kind of given little teasers and little foreshadowing, a little a preemptive uh, kind of foretaste of what's to come in the book in, in the chapter one. So I think even though we read these words, these names, and they kind of glance off of us as Gentile readers, we can kind of just skirt through this too quickly and miss the richness of God's blessing in this. So I wanted to kind of take some time and look at this text together a little more closely. Last week, I think when we started together, we, we began to see that in the opening up of the New Testament that it's actually more remarkable and fascinating than perhaps what we might have initially perceived. After 400 years, now there's 400 years transpiring since the last page of your Old Testament and the first page of your New Testament. 400 years have gone by and it's been absolute prophetic silence, which makes you nervous, right? God has stopped communicating with his people. There have been rising empires. Gentiles have come in and have taken over, have taken the people out of the land, deported them into Babylon, have kept them in captivity. All the while long, they have scarcely heard a word from the Lord. Um, it is a wonder. In fact, when you look at Malachi 4, why don't you flip back a page or two in your, in your Bible and look at Malachi 4 with me. The last words, the last revelatory communication that they have received from God is these last warnings from Malachi chapter 4. They're still ringing in the ears of the Hebrews in Matthew chapter 1. Malachi chapter 4, you'll read verses like we read in the beginning here. Now, put yourself in that situation. You're a, you're a Jewish uh, person at this time. You are returning from the exile. You're back in the land, but... Uh, things still aren't correct, things still aren't right, people aren't still worshiping wholeheartedly Yahweh without, without reservation, there's still the temptation and test for their heart to follow other gods. And here's the word from the prophet Malachi, behold, verse 1, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, saith the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That sounds like great news, doesn't it? Verse 3, The wicked shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. And then you'll see this again, verse 5, Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And basically that's the concluding thought. Now, I know there's good news mingled in with all of that, but these are the resounding messages left ringing in the ears. So 400 years will go by, and what are, you, what are you thinking as a Jewish person at this point? What are you anticipating? What are you expecting? What's the anticipation for the, for the future? Okay, yes, there is those promises. You're not wrong. But based on what we've just read, what are they expecting? Elijah, right. Why is Elijah needed? I didn't, I didn't forward the verse, didn't I? Let me show you the verse again. Elijah's coming 
before something big, something massive on the prophetic landscape. They are expecting this great judgment of God over Jew and Gentile alike, where he said in the first one, he says, I'm going to burn you root and branch. It's going to be scorched earth. The Israelites have been living in a have been conducting themselves in covenant unfaithfulness for so many years, and they have strained the covenant binding agreement that they've made with God, that God has gotten to the point he's so willing to pronounce to them, I'm bringing judgment. The great and terrible day of the Lord is coming, and there will be no one who will be left to stand. I'm going to make the wicked ashes under your feet. Now, they are anticipating, and then he doesn't say anything for 400 years. What are you left thinking? You're thinking... For 400 years, he's preparing to come at me with judgment, potentially. Okay, this is this is how the canon of the Old Testament closes. And when we read this, we are left not unsettled would be kind of a mild way of putting it. Okay, fearful, concerned. At least that's what I get when I read this. Um, and yet, when I open up the page of my New Testament, the New Testament opens with a list of names. What a curious way to open up. This is the next thing. This is how God breaks the dramatic silence between his people and him. He gives us what I think is a, a massive surprise. That's That would be an understatement. It isn't what we're expecting. I'm expecting the next words to be saying, Thus saith the Lord, now is the day of the Lord. Prepare to meet thy God. That's what I'm expecting to read in Matthew chapter 1. Okay, That's not what we read. He surprises us with the first verse. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah. Now, Matthew's writing this now after Jesus' life and ministry has already taken place. So we as the Gentile reader reading in the future, we're reading back and they're saying, wait, there was something that happened that was seismic. It, it shifted the whole equation. God was bringing and threatening his judgment threatening his great day of the Lord, and the Messiah appears. Now, this, is, this, this has a lot of hope-inspiring realities for us. First of all, we see the, that Matthew 1 is a record. That's how it starts, the record of the genealogy of Jesus. I've covered this last week with you. But one of the things that just so entirely strikes me is that the Lord did not walk away from his people. He could have. He could have laid them into the dust. Instead, he re-engages his people. There's a record, there's a recollection, there's a realization, there's a revelation. We're going to go through these together again. I'm told you we're deep diving now. We've covered the, the surface last week. Now we're going a little deeper into these. Let's look at the record together. First of all, what we see here is a surprise. The surprise is that the Lord is re-engaging his people. Rather than, you know, writing them off, rather than obliterating their existence, rather than walking away from the covenant promises. Our God is so faithful. He's so amazing. He re-engages. He, re he comes to his people again. I hope you get that. With, he's, he's a covenantly steadfast God. His fidelity to his ancient promises are, are reaffirmed here to his people, specifically those promises he made to Abraham and to, and to David. Those things, are, if you're a careful reader of the Old Testament... The Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant are like the mountains in the, in the whole landscape of the Old Testament. God purposed himself that he would bring these things about, not 
on the basis of whether they did what they were supposed to do, whether we, whether human beings fulfilled their obligations, whether they were covenant faithfully, covenant partners, he did it as a promise to himself. He obligated himself to the fulfillment of these things without condition. That is amazing. So here we have the Lord reengaging his people as a signal of his fidelity, his steadfastness, his commitment to make sure Christmas happens, to bring his Messiah. Instead of an apocalyptic pronouncement of the day of the Lord being at hand, we, God sent a person, the promised, awaited Messiah. By the way, isn't it interesting when Jesus opens his mouth in public ministry, what's the, what's the thing that comes out? Repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. So the day of the Lord is not off the table, but it comes with a very serious gesture from the Lord of an offering of peace and goodwill to men. That's where that's coming from, okay? So the Lord is reengaging his people. The Lord is also remembering his promises, his promises to Abraham and David. He's not dealing with them on the conditions that were set forth under Moses' covenant where they promised that they would fulfill the law, and if they fulfilled the law, God would be good to them and allow them to remain in the land, and that God would do these, uh, uh, this, this contractual con- covenant agreement where they do uh, items A, B, and C, and God will promise to fulfill these other things. God's not working in that relationship with them. He's superseded that with the covenant to Abraham and David. He is talking to them in terms of, I'm intending to do a new thing. Something new. He he. That's what uh, that was. The words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and these other um, former prophets, where they were speaking about the Lord now was going to assume the role of rescuer and put a new heart into the being of if everyone who uh, follow him and trust in him in faith. So some of the most. Um, so so anyway, the Lord has determined a new thing. New a new thing. The genealogical record in Matthew here is written for a. In a, in a certain way to cause us to remember the covenant unfaithfulness of the people of the Old Testament. It's written in such a way, it's kind of embarrassing. It's sort of scandalous in the way he's written this. It seems like he's trying to spotlight the, the covenant faithfulness, unfaithfulness of all the human participants. Some of the most spectacular sins in all of the Bible are going to be laid out here again for consideration. And the Bible makes a surprise, uh, all these spectacular sins in the Bible make a surprise appearance here and are exposed again for our reflection. Now, why is he doing that? Why do you suppose he would revisit these these sins? He's going to mention Bathsheba and David. He's going to mention Judah and Tamar. He's going to mention Rahab and some of her background. Okay, so he's, he's revisiting some of these things. And he's doing it for a purpose. And then at the end, we're left with one name to kind of an answer for that. But anyway, I think what he's doing this for is he's deciding, he wants to showcase the impeccable credentials of the one who is the Messiah, Jesus, the promised king. So the Lord is not only reengaging his people, he's remembering his promises, and he's redeeming his people from their sins. Look at Matthew 1, and as we move down to verse 21, the good news comes to Joseph and says, Mary will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Lord is, is announcing here that you cannot save you from your sins. You cannot save yourself. Therefore, the Lord is bringing himself a savior. And his role will be to undertake and assume the responsibility of your salvation. 
He's your rescuer. He's the gracious rescuer. The, this, at this point, the God, God is graciously and unilaterally redeeming men and women who could not prove faithful themselves. This is good news. Is it? Isn't it? This is us. We couldn't have proved ourselves worthy to, to make ourselves redeemable, to make ourselves considerate, a, a, a candidate for salvation. And yet the Lord himself is assuming the responsibility. He will save his people from their sins. This is good news. So there's a, re- a record here. He's rescuing the unrighteous. And in case you were to think that's a new thing, he just showed you in the Old Testament how the Old Testament is packed full of grace. Did you think grace was a New Testament concept? Did you think that was just something that popped on the radar in the New Testament? No way. He's been faithfully gracious all along. That's the point. Okay. So there's a record. There's also a recollection here. And the recollection of all these names. I want to kind of, I know we can't name all of the names here. And there are high points and there are things we know more about than others. But the people who are mentioned and given a little more detail are significant. And uh, it would do us well to meditate on them. Matthew's gospel reveals how the Lord surprised us with grace. He surprised us with grace. When we expected abandonment, we expected uh, him to be uh, give us righteous judgment. But the recollection shows that God already has been dispensing grace to undeserving recipients from the beginning of time. He gave grace to Adam in the garden. He gave grace to a pagan man worshiping amongst a pagan people in the Ur of Chaldees. Called him out for his great purposes and made a promise to him. And Abraham believed God. And the Lord counted to him for righteousness. God is showing grace. He shows grace to undeserving sinners. Now, this is, this is a sort of a fundamental. This is Christianity Basic 101, okay? Grace shown to undeserving people. What a magnificent demonstration of God's character here. And we laud that. We love that. We, we glorify God for the, the grace he's given to us. And yet, at this time of year, I'm just going to pause here for a moment, put the pause here. Now, what does that imply for his followers, those who are of him, of his Messiah, those who, of us who have been recipients of grace, freely we receive grace, Freely we should give grace. All right, so now we're here at Christmas season. You think your family's bad, okay? I'm just saying, we all have crazy people in our family, right? I bet your other family members are thinking, yeah, there are crazy people in my family, probably thinking about you at this time right now. Uh, You ain't seen nothing until you see the people in Jesus' family. That's what we're going to read about. These people are, they make the Griswolds look like they're the, the... Brady Bunch, okay? They are just so messed up, sinful people. And yet God doesn't meet them with judging, judgment and harshness and, and what he's well qualified and well able to do. He meets them in grace. Now, instruction here, instruction moment here. What's that mean for us? When we meet our our family, our, our, those around us we, we work with or we spend time with that just rub us the wrong way. They're not helped by your criticisms. They're not helped by your backbiting, by your co- gossip with other family members about them. They're not helped by that. They're helped by the grace that you received. Kindness, undeserved love and faithfulness and mercy to them. Extend a re- 
Be like God. Come back to the table with them. Re-engage them where you can. Embrace them. Minister to them in grace this, this year. Okay? This, is, this is the example Jesus' is, life and ministry is showing us here. He's re-engaging people who were already written off, who were thought they were too far gone, who were thought they were no good, and yet we see God in his grace re-engaging. But the recollection of God's grace is repeated name after name after name here. The first one I, I notice here in the recollection is his grace to the sleeping. And you see that here in verse, uh, let's just go ahead and read verse 2. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Abraham, the father of Isaac. I'm just thinking about Abraham, and, and I'm, nothing here in the text is directing us to this account. But I, I'm thinking about the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God made, which was reaffirmed again and again. And if you take a moment, remember back to a, perhaps you remember that account in Genesis 15, where God begins to make a promise to Abraham and says, I'm going to make your name great. You're going to, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Oh, did I say nation? I meant nations. Make great nations out of you. Out of your, out of, out of your seed, there will be a blessing. Specifically, specifically in your heir, Isaac. He doesn't name him at the time in Genesis 15, but there's a seed coming from Abraham, from his own loins, the Bible says. And that all the families in the earth will be blessed. Now, none of that's explained how it's going to happen yet. That still develops through the life of Abraham as he learns to trust that promise in the form that God gives it. God gives him land, the promise of the land of the Canaanites, and says his reward will be great, and he will receive a seed numerous, more numerous than the sand of the sea and the stars of the heavens. And he's going to give them a possession of land. And, and, and Abraham's staggered by this. He says, how can I know? How can I know you're going to keep your promise, God? Genesis chapter 15 says God gave him some instructions. He was to go out and he was to gather up several livestock animals and some birds and in the Old Testament, they went through a covenant ceremony, an important ceremony that was somber and sober as a promise that the fulfillment of this will be taking place. So Abraham was to kill these animals, divide them in half, and lay them opposing each other in sort of a, a lane, like an aisle like we have here. And the blood from these animals would trickle down into the middle, and blood would be all over the pathway here. And the and two people making a covenant promise together would then make the ceremony where they pass through the middle of those animals, walking upon the blood, as if to say, this is the most solemn promise I can make that should I fail to keep this promise, let happen to me what's happened to these animals here. Let my life be given and my life be sacrificed. And then... It appears almost like Abraham's going to walk this lane with, he's going to walk in this aisle with God. Looks like he's going to make this promise, this, this mutual kind of agreement among equals. Abraham's got to keep his covenant and God's got to keep his covenant. But that's not what happens. God puts Abraham to sleep. And Genesis chapter 15 tells us that God himself walked through the middle of those animals in the form of a burning oven and a smoking furnace. And they passed through, and a burning lamp, I mean. And he passed through there, and God himself made a promise that he undertook unilaterally without Abraham's involvement. Abraham would be the recipient of all these wonderful blessings without any works done for his own benefit. God gave grace to the sleeping. He would be promised a son. We know the story. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, God would further tell Abraham that out of you, kings will come forth. Kings will come forth and fill the earth. 
king. And so, sure enough, God made good on that promise. After Abraham, we read in verse 1, we see Abraham gave birth to Isaac, or was the father of Isaac. That's the word there. He fathered Isaac, <laughs> Isaac and Jacob, whose only recollection in the Old Testament seems to be that they were schemers. I mean, you think about Isaac. Isaac and his, and his mother were in scheming to try to deceive, right? And, and um, Isaac and Rebecca, uh, um, yeah, Isaac and, sorry, Jacob and Rachel, Isaac and Rebecca, Rebecca and Isaac. I have to get those mixed up all the time. They had to scheme to find, uh, to, uh, for Esau to get the blessing, but, but uh, Rebecca says, no, Jacob's going to get the blessing. And there had to be this elaborate charade to try to get that, bless, that birthright blessing hijacked into the right direction in the way that God wanted it to go. Isaac was not yielded in that way to the will of God. Jacob was a schemer for the birthright. He stole it from Esau and over a pot of soup. Then he schemed his own father-in-law for cattle. And um, a host of other things, even wrestled with the angel of the Lord. So none of these men are portrayed in a positive light in terms of their covenant faithfulness. They're not worthy individuals to receive the bloodline of the Messiah. This is God showering and lavishing grace in so many ways. We also see that there's um, grace to the scheming. There's also grace to the sexually immoral. You know, right after we meet Isaac and Jacob, we are introduced to one of the 12 of Jacob's sons, Judah. Judah was the one whom Jacob would bless and say, out of you is going to rise a scepter. A king will come forth from you. you a lion out of the king of Judah? That's the, that's the phrase used in Genesis. Okay? Judah had some major problems. Judah had some sons. And Judah's, Judah's first son, Ur, I think his name was Ur, E-R, uh, was married to a woman named Tamar. Tamar was trying to, they were trying to have a, 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 an offspring that would be the heir. And he died because he was so evil. The Bible says God killed him. And then his brother was supposed to come in and take, take up the role of the, of the, to raise up seed unto his brother's name. And he failed to do that. He disobeyed God and God killed him. And then the third one was a young, the youngest son was too young to marry at that time, but he was promised by Judah to Tamar to make sure there was a there was some kind of progenitor of the of the of the line, and Judah failed to keep good on his com, on his promise, so Tamar became uh, took things in her own hands. She disguised herself as a prostitute, lured in Judah himself, her own father-in-law, by that illicit meeting and union. They they uh, fathered twins out of that. Pharez and I think his name's mentioned here, Pharez and um, Hezron. And through this illicit act, you would think this prostitution, there's incest, there's this horrible, unredeemable situation. You think there's nothing good in this whole scene. We often like to skip this with our kids when we're reading through the Bible together. We don't even read this story because it's so like, what's going on here, you know? Ah, this is uncomfortable. But here we read in Matthew 1 that God even used that wicked, horrible situation. He turned it for good because uh, Perez was the recipient of the heir of promise. He, out of his line, became the, uh, became the Messiah. Can you imagine that? A God who is so sovereign, so powerful that he can redeem unredeemable situations, that he can bring hope through hopelessness? That's amazing. Yeah, Ben. It's important to note in the Bible how 
just because these stories are recorded doesn't mean, like, there's a difference in the Bible between when God commands something or God does something and when he's directing through the affairs of man, which are sinful. Yes. And there's Good. a difference yeah. there because you can see that in those stories. Uh, and, and I, when I Indeed. history reformation, I see the same thing. Yeah. There's all these situations that are completely not morally correct, but God's working through them in, in spite of them, and that's exactly Precisely. Very, very excellent point. Yes. So God is, God is work overworking. He's working through sin. The sin permitted to take place is not an obstacle to the fulfillment of God's ultimate decree and will. That's just a mind blowing. That just amazes me that God's not stopped in his in his purposes. And despite a lot, he works. Good point, Ben. Thank you for sharing that. Then there's the mention here, very quickly here, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram, which we don't know much about. Ram was the father of Minadab. We don't know much about Minadab either. The father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Salmon, uh, there's only speculation about who he might be, but some might have thought he, Salmon might have been one of the two faithful spies that returned from exploring Jericho. And in Jericho's, uh, maybe searching out the people there, in that encounter, we, she, he met a woman named Ruth, who was a, a woman of ill repute. She was an innkeeper. She was not a, the kind of innkeeper you'd think of at the Bethlehem story. <laughs> she was probably uh, a brothel owner and had a, had a business there. But in spite of that life she had been encompassed with, the Lord had been working in her heart, and a fear of God descended on her. When she saw the people of Israel, she knew God had given her city to, to, to the people of Israel. And in faith, she uh, believed, and the Lord used her, included her in this magnificent list of names. Uh, Bo um, says here that, um, uh, going on here, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz married Rahab. Then Boaz was, I'm oh sorry, I just said that wrong. Salmon and Rahab had Boaz. Now we know who Boaz is, right? Boaz is that figure, the kinsman redeemer from the book of Ruth, who steps into the scene, assumes the care of Mo, the Moabitess woman who should have been a cast out. She should have been a stranger. She'd been a non-entity to Boaz. He should have been oblivious of her existence. And she is, he gives her freedom to graze in amongst his workers, not in the corners and the gleanings of the field, in the middle of the workers. She gets the, the fruitfulness. She gets the bounty of the crop. I mean, and then he just welcomes her in and inquires after her care. She's lost her husband. She's destitute. He decides he's going to take up for her and care for her and take, take her into his home, even be willing to um, corrupt his own inheritance by bringing in this Moabitess. And he just shows this lavish grace. Now, I wonder why he would feel such sympathy for an outsider if his own mother wasn't also an outsider welcomed in into the covenant of grace. It's amazing how you, you think about God's working in these situations. So we see Ruth is uh, mentioned here. She's a Moabitess. What place does she have among the seed of Abraham? What's her position? What, what claim does she have to be, have any hope in the covenant? But God, through faith, included her, brought her in by marriage to um, Boaz. What an amazing story here. So we're seeing all this. God was faithful to the sexually immoral, that is uh, Judah and Tamar. We see 
David and Bathsheba mentioned. In fact, it's the way, curious the way David's mentioned. Ruth and Boaz have a, have a son named Obed. Obed births a son named Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. So David is related to Ruth by, like, it's his great-grandmother. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so we're making the connections with the Old Testament. Matthew has not disconnected himself from the Old Testament. He's making sure that you're tracking with him. He's pulling the forward. The narrative follows him, comes with him, and we're tying all these pieces together. Rahab, I'm sorry, pardon me. We are on Bathsheba now. Bathsheba is mentioned here. David was named as the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. I'm in verse, end of verse 5. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. And then we're given this little reminder, who had been the wife of Uriah. You remember this story, of course. I don't know that I need to rehearse this to you, but Bathsheba, we don't know much about her, but except that she had been married to a Hittite man. She named Uriah, faithful man, who apparently uh, had sympathies with Israel. Uh, perhaps himself, of course, uh, believed, in the, and believed in Yahweh, participant in the, wanted to be among the people. Um, though Bathsheba herself would have been probably violating some covenant commands to, to intermarry among the heathen. She did, and uh, the story goes that David saw her, wanted her, and did not deny himself and took her for himself and uh, then had her husband murdered. Uh, it's hard to believe that David, a man like David, who would pen the, the Psalms that we've read or to be capable of such a thing, but it just goes to remind you that if David's capable of such a thing, none of us are beyond the temptations that lay there for us. If your heart isn't following Christ steadfastly, you are you're susceptible. You're, you're vulnerable to that. So reminding yourself that even David, the best of men perhaps, I would, you could say, you could make that argument, he would perhaps be with some of the best of men. A man following God's own heart in pursuit of God's heart has moments of, has moments of weakness and, and uh, sinful temptation that would keep him locked up in, in, in horrible consequences for the, forever thereafter. Four people would die in response to that sin. Four of David's sons would die. The baby, and there was Amnon, and there was Abijah, and uh, Absalom. All four sons. He paid a dear cost for that sin. And, and none of those would be the heir that would carry the messianic line. Instead, we see here that uh, David and Bathsheba had Solomon. Solomon's well-known. Solomon started well, didn't he? Solomon started well. He seemed like he was, the nation was in revival. The temple was being built. The people were enthusiastic about wholeheartedly serving Yahweh. And yet, David, uh, Solomon's 300 wives and 700 concubines swayed his heart towards idolatry. And he led the people into a wide array of idolatrous acts. And the kingdom collapsed before he even got started, really. Um. So as we see this continue, then what you'll read is a list of kings. All of these are the kings that will appear in sequence in the line of David. If you want more detail about this, we did, a, we did an equipping class on survey of the former prophets. In the last section, the last hour of that class, we went through all these kings and described their lives and their, uh, and their administrations. If you're interested in that, it's a fascinating study. Um, so you can go check that out later. But... This recollection brings us to an inescapable conclusion that many of those in the bloodline of the Messiah, they were not model Israelites. They weren't righteous. They weren't steadfastly faithful. And they weren't even seeking Yahweh. 
Many of them weren't. The recollection brings us to this inescapable realization that mankind desperately needs God's anointed Messiah, a Messiah which can excel where all these others have miserably failed. God gave grace to strangers. He gave grace to the son of David, sons of David. I'll talk about the shamed ones next week, perhaps, if there's time. But I love what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. At the end of reading this list of names of unfaithful men, he says, Thus, on the first page of the gospel, Jesus is presented as connected with a race that nevertheless could not produce him. He came into it, was of it, and yet, I should say, was distinct from it. These unrighteous men could not have produced this Messiah. They could not have produced a man impeccably righteous, without flaw, without any sin. And uh, that creates a tension in this narrative because as we read down through, you'll see the tension at the latter part when Joseph is mentioned. I love this. Mark MacArthur says, It's both interesting and significant that since the destruction of the temple in AD 70, no genealogies even exist anymore. No genealogies exist that can trace the ancestry of any Jew now living. The primary significance of that fact is that for those Jews still looking for Messiah today, his lineage to David could never really be established. So Jesus Christ is the last verifiable claimant to the throne of David, therefore to the Messianic line. Consider that. If there was ever any hope for anyone in the world today looking for the Messiah, you literally can look nowhere else than to the biblical witness, for the, in these genealogies specifically, for the identification of the Lord's anointed one to Jesus himself. So, there's that. So I think we're going to pause right here. Next week, I want to dive into the realization. As you begin to read these, these things, a realization, a realization dawns upon you as you continue to read. You begin to read that the prophets had already spoken prolifically about the Messiah. 456 identifiable characteristics are already previously listed thousands of years before Jesus comes into this earth. 456 prophecies mentioned that would help people identify the Messiah. Jesus alone matches every single one. It's like a prophetic fingerprint laid down. And when you see Jesus step into the scene, Matthew's going to showcase in all of the relevant ways how Jesus fits the perfect predictions of the, of the prophets. His favorite phrase is um, ace plerothe, which means that it might be fulfilled. It's being fulfilled. The things you heard in the Old Testament, they are fru- coming to fruition. You are witnesses to the things that what generations have hoped for. We look back and we yawn through the stories of, the, of, these, of these parables sometimes. We fall asleep in church listening to the stories of Jesus. This is staggering stuff, man. This is amazing. Things that prophets only dreamed to have seen, saw in visions. We look back and see it as history. And uh, it's staggering things. That's what Christmas is about. It's about Christ. Christ is the Messiah. He showcases that. He is the one sent to, from God as a, as a gift, as a peace offering, as it were, a sacrifice to restore God and man, to, bre- to close the breach between unfaithful covenant partner and God, the covenant faithful one. It's a fascinating study. I hope that next week you'll return. We'll wrap this study up. I think we're going to close up with this, the significance of Jesus as the realization that Jesus is the only one who could be your Messiah. And uh, I want to, I'm going to make an appeal for you to give, to give your life to him. Okay? 
I don't assume that everyone in the room here already has a relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I hope that you do, and I, I trust that many of you do, obviously. You love him, and you follow him. But uh, at, the end of this, at the end of this study, I want to make the appeal for you. If you've never come to saving faith and trust in Christ Jesus this Christmas, as you see who he is, I pray that awake, something awakens in you, a new appreciation and a love for the one God provided for the salvation for man, that one through whom he would save his people, from their sins, you would treasure him like none other, and that he'd be precious to you in new ways. Even if you are one who walks with Christ, that, that, that will deepen for you this Christmas. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege to be in your word this morning. I pray that uh, we will not just let these things glance off our ears and therefore off our heart, that we would, like Mary, ponder these things in our hearts, that we would exclaim even with her, the Lord the God of heaven, he can do the impossible thing. He, with God, all things are possible. To see that come about in the, in, the, in the fruition of the line of David, nothing prevented you in the fulfillment of your decree to bring your king to this earth and to establish his kingdom and to begin to exalt him. I pray that you would help us this morning as we worship that king in the, in the service to follow our hearts that would be fully in tune with what your prophetic plan has been all this long. Prepare our hearts to receive your word with great thrill and great joy. Help us to marvel at these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for your time. We'll see you next week.